2: The story of ink is almost as old as the story of human civilization. It begins in Neolithic China. We're going to take you today on a fast trip from there to the introduction of the ballpoint pen to the United States by a rather unscrupulous character. From there, we're going to go to a different kind of ink, invisible ink, which has been used by lovers and spies. And lastly, we'll talk about why that tiny little cartridge of printer ink costs $60. Maybe why it shouldn't. Maybe why it won't. After the news. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to, to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery.
0: For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health.
2: Oh, Great Shang, Imperial Leader of the Neolithic
1: peoples along the Yellow River, this one requests your time. What is it? I have invented a substance which will change the way we live.
3: Is it gunpowder? I am really looking forward to gunpowder.
1: I do not know of gunpowder. I have invented a fluid for recording words. I call it ink.
3: That's a weird name. What does it do?
1: It allows us to write.
3: I can already write. I take a stick and make word pictures in the river mud. Didn't you read my memoir, Falcon House Bunny Rabbit? It was supposed to be called Eat, Pray, Love, but I can't draw hands really well.
1: This will be a much better kind of writing. Here, try some ink.
3: All right, let me see. Ugh, this is disgusting. It's all black and smelly and wet. Oh, I really hate it. You must be punished for this. I'm writing up a proclamation condemning you to be disciplined for your terrible Ike. Ink. Whatever, bring me a mud tablet. I'm writing you up right now.
1: Is that a flower?
3: No, it's a whip. Anybody can see. It's a whip.
1: It looks like it says hat flower fence bird.
3: Does it? Well, then let that be your fate. It's nothing but hat flower fence bird for you, you little fish-faced enemy of the people. What a nerve this guy has coming in here with wet, disgusting, messy black stuff. Somebody come clean this up. Have sponges been invented yet? Don't sponges just live somewhere? This may take a while to sort out. Meanwhile, the last surviving ink spot... Colin McEnroe.
2: I am the last uh, surviving ink spot. I was. I sang the lead on "Prisoner of Love." All right. So today, that is not. I think how ink was invented, but it's not. As far from how ink was invented as we sometimes are from the truth at the beginnings of these shows, uh, you're about to hear uh, a little bit more about the history of ink. We are going to start in ancient China and take you at least through the introduction of the ballpoint pen. Uh, That'll be the first segment. Uh, You'll meet the guest in just a second. Later in the show, we're also going to talk about the history of invisible ink, ink that is used to conceal something, uh, ink that is used for lovers to send forbidden messages or for people in the Military and espionage fields to send things that they only want certain people to see, and then lastly on the show today, you know how you go to Staples or wherever and you buy an ink cartridge, and it's like sixty or sixty-five dollars, and there's not a lot of technology in it, and there's not that much ink in it either, and like you know, the the price of that fluid is like more than you would pay for pay for human plasma, roughly what you might pay for something like mercury. <laughs> So why is that and what can be done about it? Uh, It's a pretty interesting story. These are all very interesting stories. Uh, So here we go. We're about to plunge into the story of Inc. with Ted Bishop, professor of English literature and film studies at the University of Alberta and author of the new book, Inc., Culture, Wonder, and Our Relationship with the Written Word. Ted Bishop, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you. And that was a wonderful opening
2: segment. Well, we weren't that far from the truth anyway. We were at least in the right country, right? If you're going to start talking about ink and the wellsprings of ink, you do start in China, don't you?
1: Yeah, I think it, <clears throat> according to all the, the sort of written records, that's, that's where ink is first invented. And, and uh, well, where the art of calligraphy starts. So that's, you're in the right place to move from the mud tablet to the, to, to the fluid,
2: but the fluid was, I mean, maybe the other way in which we're a little bit right was the fluid probably wasn't this sterile manufactured thing that we're used to thinking of when we think about ink. This was, I mean, you talk about ink recipes, and you really kind of mean recipes, right?
1: Right. The, I mean, the, the original Chinese inks were um, in, in hard form, like dominoes, and you would grind your ink fresh every morning, the way you make fresh coffee. You wouldn't have a, a bottle of it sitting around and the finest inks had uh, all kinds of perfumes, exotic substances, uh, often had gold if you were getting a really exotic ink. And, and so it, it isn't at all like my, my bottle of Waterman's Blue black that I use for my fountain pen
2: right you describe it you know after you've strained your soot and dissolved your glue in the juice of the chin tree you add 5 egg whites 1 ounce of crushed pearl and the same amount of must after they have been separately treated and well strained in other words this was a, a pretty labor intensive process and in, in, involved sort of ingredients found in nature right
1: right and it i mean one thing about the process is that the here ink is, is just an industrial product like our like our our printer printer cartridges but in in Ming Dynasty China you if you're an ink maker in the upper echelons your your ink cakes would be gifts to the emperor who might then use them in turn to hand out to his generals or or his his best administrators or ambassadors so the the ink was was something that was uh, an aesthetic object, and something that was—it it came from the earth and was connected to the uh, well local products, but but also the sort of finest substances that people could find.
2: Right. You write, these ink recipes from a thousand years ago have the density of poetry. They take you into a strange world where men and women grind the rind of pomegranates and conduct love affairs with ink from the gall of the turtle. So so was it therefore a kind of competitive thing? I mean, both maybe in, in China thousands of years ago and for all I know, anywhere else was there a sort of um, uh, our, our ink is better than your ink kind of smack talk?
1: Oh, for sure. And in fact, one of the one of the stories that got me started, I, I first saw an ink cake in the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, and it looked like a hockey puck with a design on it, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And the, uh, um, the, the little blurb talked about two ink makers, Cheng and Feng, and one was the apprentice to the other, and the the apprentice then stole the designs of the master, and he also stole a concubine of the master, and got the master accused of uh, of murder, and imprisoned for seven years. While he sort of took over the ink market, and then, but the master's uh, supporters were spreading rumors that uh, the apprentice's ink really wasn't that good, and that the uh, he wasn't using fine products. He was actually using cheap charcoal in the center of his ink cakes, and so it was. Uh, it was something that people could get killed over, and was the the recipes were as secretly guarded as as software recipes are today. It was uh, so it was very competitive. It was it was very lucrative, and um, your 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 reputation as a as a scholar and as a as a gentleman would would rest on the quality of your ink.
2: You know, Ted Bishop. I know you traveled all around the world to write this book. Is it the case? I feel as though there, are, you know, everywhere that you go, there are certain things that have a kind of different kind of recognizable code than they do someplace else. I mean, for example... You know, cheese in France is much more of a kind of living thing. And you have it on the table for a couple of days and the cat walks across it. And it's just like a member of the family until you get done eating it. And and I feel like ink here in the United States is just this thing, this inert thing. My ballpoint pen is out of ink. I need some more. I need a cartridge for my printer. Ink is just a thing we use to make these marks. Is it the case in China that it still has a little bit more of the cachet that it started out with?
1: Yeah, I think when I when I went to China, I I had read about these these Ming Dynasty ink makers that I saw at the Metropolitan Museum and I visited a factory where they were using the the, the same catalogs, the same designs as as they had in the Ming Dynasty, which roughly corresponds to the European Renaissance. So, 500 years old, and I talked to my opposite number at Shanghai University, a member of the English department, and said, "Is is ink and calligraphy still important?" And he said, "Yes, it can it can still be the deciding factor in whether you get a job or not, the, the quality of your calligraphy." And students now are lamenting the fact that when when they enter university, they don't have time to keep up their calligraphy, and they worry that that. Uh, the writing of the whole culture will will suffer. But from grades one to 12, they're grinding their ink every morning and, and uh, practicing their writing in a way that, I don't know, I had cursive writing in grades three and four, and and now I think it's just get printing, and, and if you have a pen that runs out of ink, you just throw it away and, and get another one. But in uh, in China, they still speak of the four treasures of the study, which is the, the pen or the brush, the ink, the inkstone, and the paper. So these these things are still revered.
2: I feel as though I've read the obituary for ink as a writing tool anyway more than once already. And really, I mean, if you go back to the invention of movable type, there were abbots in the age of Gutenberg who were like the abbot of Trondheim would issue some proclamation saying this is terrible. People are going to not know how to write anymore. Scribes who who transcribe religious texts with great reverence and beauty and spiritual connection to what they're writing down are going to be replaced by a machine that machine just being movable type the printing press um, so I, I, I suppose I could pick up a magazine today and sort of also read about the idea that nobody's really going to write in ink anymore how true does that strike you?
1: Well when I was writing the book I I was convinced that we it, it, it was kind of an epitaph um, I, when I when I spoke to an editor about it uh, she said this is a great idea because nobody writes anymore and she said I have a pen in my purse at all times, but it's only to write down phone numbers um, or addresses and, and then I don't write. But what the research tells us is that writing things down solidifies things in the brain in a way that we, uh, we hadn't really thought of. And when you type on a computer, you can just sort of go into stenographer mode and, and uh, take everything down, but, it, but none of it sticks.
2: Um, so we're going to have to leap across the various historical chasms just for the sake of time, but that's all to the good because that means that if people want to know even more about all this stuff, uh, you, you have to read Ted Bishop's book, Ink Culture, Wonder, and Our Relationship with the Written Word. But So I'm going to le- leap way across time. I've always been puzzled uh, until your book came along as to why the British refer to a ballpoint pen as a biro. Um, now I know, but tell everybody else why that is. Okay,
1: well, it was actually invented by a gay, uh, guy named uh, Laszlo Biro in in Hungary, uh, just before the Second World War, and he had to leave Budapest, went to Buenos Aires, and that's where he perfected the ballpoint pen. And the story is that he was he was correcting proof sheets of uh, a magazine article at a at a printing press in in Budapest, and uh, his his pen was smearing, his fountain pen, but he looked at the way that the 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 um, printing press was laying down ink that then instantly was was solid and wasn't smearing, and he thought, why can't why can't we do that? And in fact, uh, if you look at your ballpoint pen, what it is in effect is is a tiny rollerball printing press, and. The ink is not like fountain pen ink, which is water based. It's it's oil based in the ballpoint pen, just as it is in the the, the printing machines for a newspaper. And so that that little ball rolls the things on, uh, the ink on, and, and uh, it stays. And it uh, it took Barrow ten years to to really perfect the ink. Um, and and the first users of it were the the Royal Air Force bomber crews because they wanted something that would write at high altitude.
2: It's trying to write in your bomber with your fountain pen. Uh, Seems like a a doomed enterprise anyway. Yeah. So I'm so glad that you pointed this out, that that Bureau, you know, in a way he he has some kinship with those ancient Chinese scribes who were constantly fussing over ink recipes and, you know, how much pomegranate to put in or something. I mean, he he didn't just have this eureka moment and then put out a ballpoint pen. Right. He he did a similar process of trial and error. Yeah, I mean
1: he he sort of had the eureka moment of fitting a ball in in into a socket. Though there was a saddle maker in Massachusetts who'd who'd done that in the 1880s, uh, producing something more like a roller ball deodorant. But it, but it, it was the ink getting the right viscosity. And uh, up here in Canada, I mean, it, in in the winter time it's 30 below, and and in the summertime it's 80 to 90 above, and the humidity goes from 10 percent to 90 percent and the thing still works, and we just take it completely for granted, and then we use it to stab open a bag of chips or cut through strapping tape. But, but the ballpoint uh, is actually um, a, a really finely tuned instrument, and it all comes back to that ink, getting it to flow when it should flow, but not come out and leak all over your shirt.
2: Right. I have done both those things, the chips and the strapping tape. You've just made me feel really bad about it. So here's Biro, this rather scrupulous man who takes quite a bit of pride in what he does, into his office uh, in Argentina one day walks a man who is perhaps a little tiny bit less scrupulous. His name is Milton Reynolds. Uh, And what does he do?
1: Well, Reynolds Reynolds is a wonderful character, and somebody should make a movie out of him because he's a— the consummate flim flam artist he he first made a lot of money um marketing uh, fake zippo lighters, uh, apparently some of which exploded and and apparently uh, you know some someone died from one of his lighters. I don't know if that's true or not. Reynolds came into Barrow's office, looked at the pen, questioned him, discovered that uh, Barrow didn't have the a patent for the full pen just for the feed. And so he he went back to Chicago, Reynolds did, and decided he was going to put together a pen in in, in six weeks to to get ready for the, the, the big Christmas sales of 1945. And he said this would be the retail event of the century. People, the war was over. People had money to spend. And he had people lined up around the block at Gimbel's department store. They had to have 50 policemen out. And it was like the... Uh, the introduction of the iPhone um everybody was excited. these things were expensive, but it was new technology, but they actually didn't work. They leaked all over the place and uh one I was reading letters in the archives, abusive letters to Reynolds, saying this thing popped out and squirted into my eye and went all over my shirt and ruined my 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 carpet and I'm sending you a bill for all of this stuff and um And one very short letter suggested uh a not-very-polite place where um, Reynolds could place his pen <laughs> sideways. Um, and, uh, but people kept buying these things, and, and Reynolds really captured the – he made pens sexy. His, his, his motto was, got a rocket in your pocket. And he had a, a big ad with a picture of a girl with her skirt flying up, riding on a, a, a giant pen like a teeter-totter. Um, So he was all about marketing, and not at all about the ink, which didn't work at all.
2: Well, yes, and so what he had essentially done in the parlance of today is he had knocked off Bureau. I mean, he, he, he just bought a few of these pens at the airport or something and, and just kind of knocked off the design uh, as well as he could or maybe not even as well as he could. So, But that raises the question, okay, so there's this kind of go-go, end of World War II, beginning of post-war era uh, atmosphere where everything is going to be new and better and different and probably less permanent and cheaper, more affordable to the masses. So the, the, the ballpoint pen, especially the more disposable it is, the more it fits into that ethos. But since Reynolds had such a crappy product, who, was it Bic actually that who who ultimately made this something that people could use with a bit more confidence?
1: Yeah, it was this this French guy Marcel Beek, uh and then somebody said, "Well, uh, change, take the H off the end of your name, and you get Bic, and it's something that can be pronounced in any language." And he spent another two years just on on the ink and refining the ball. He got a Swedish jeweler to create balls that would would work. And even Reynolds was marketing this pen as something that would last for 15 years. He said, buy it now and it'll still be writing in college. And Bick's revolution was that he would create something that wasn't going to be handed down to your grandchild, wasn't going to write all the way through college it was going to write for a while and then you just toss it. It was the first really disposable, um, uh, object. And he, uh, he lost millions initially trying to get into the American market, but he kept marketing this thing for 19 cents, um, and until it caught on. And then, as you know, it, BICs are all over the world and, and, uh, we still use them. And, uh, he was he was sort of a combination of of Biro and Reynolds. He, he had the 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 marketing flair of of Reynolds and and the attention to craft and determination to get it right of, of Biro. And uh, when I started the book, I thought I'd spend maybe one paragraph on on the Bit pen. And in fact, I spent about three months doing research. I was I became fascinated by the thing. And I still I was stabbing a bag of chips with it last night and thinking, man, these things are great. So.
2: Well, not only can you stab a bag of chip, chips, you can stab your adversary in the neck, right? You reenacted something from a movie in one of your lectures. What? Is this yours? Your yeah, that's my pen. Well, hey, a
1: Why? It. No, it's a nice pen. I just didn't know it was. I it was yours. I didn't want it to get lost. Well, thank
2: you. Why don't you take that for from- up your ass jag
1: off. Well, I, uh, I became fascinated by the way it, it turns up in, I think it's a Casino, where Joe Pesci stabs some oh, guy. That scene, oh. What's that? You hear, you hear a little girl, Frankie? You
3: hear a little girl ace? Is that a little f-ing girl? <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: is it Red Eye, where um, the bad guy on the plane gets stabbed in the throat? That is, yeah, that is right. And, and um, uh, I, I waste a lot of time, you know looking at YouTube clips of people getting stabbed, but the most famous one is is, um, uh, from the first uh, Bourne movie, where the assassin comes in through the the window and is uh, shooting at him with a submachine gun, and they wrestle. And he stabs him, and I, I was giving a lecture, and so... I sort of acted it out on stage, you know me me backing up to a table and then grabbing a a pen and you know sticking it in the the, the hand of the adversary, which then allows born to to overpower him. Open that Open that, Tell me what's inside. Who are you? Who are you? And I said, today that wouldn't happen. That's already an anachronism, because Bourne would back up, his hand, would shuffle over the desk. Grab an iPad and go whack and hit his an assassin in the ear, who would then brush it aside and you know kill Bourne. Um, and what what amazed me was that everybody in the audience—it was a university audience, of people from eighteen to seventy—everybody knew that scene. Uh, and and so the the ballpoint pen has this—it's it's this utilitarian object, but it, it it also has this kind of subtext as as a weapon.
2: Uh, right. It's the so, closest thing to a weapon that you probably have on your person if you are not an armed person. Hey very quickly here, we've got to move on to the next segment, but I okay. I feel like there's you know there's in 1965, for example, uh, the French government ordained that the Ministry of Education said that ballpoint pens would be in use in French schools. And that immediately touched off with these very difficult French debates uh, about uh, among intellectuals about how this is probably the end of civilization or something along those lines. And I feel like has that conversation finally ended now? Is it sort of like... Okay, no ballpoint pens are just going to be everywhere, and there's no particular virtue in the fountain pen or the cartridge pen or anything like that.
4: Well,
1: I don't know. Three or four years ago, I would have said yes, but now what I'm seeing is uh, more and more of my hip young students turning up with with fountain pens, and they're um, they're learning how to write more carefully, um, and and it it seems like the the very the thing that the French were were worried about that it would, would undermine your moral character and there would be no discernment and taste. Now you, you're regarded as a person of discernment if you can write something and if you send someone a thank you note uh that is handwritten, just a few words, um, they'll they'll treasure that. Whereas if you um type it out and print it out on your, your inkjet printer, um, nobody's gonna be much impressed. So mm-hmm. In a way it 's like we 're swinging back to this as a as a kind of um, um, an artisan
2: uh, yeah. thesis craft marker thesis and antithesis well, Ted Bishop, thank you so much for uh, talking to us. I should mention that we had also booked Matt Damon for today to talk about that uh, scene in the born identity and we just don't have time. We'll, uh, Matt will be on, I'm sure, at some future date. We're just—you can't talk to him today. Uh, but uh, Ted Bishop's book is Ink, Culture, Wonder, and Our Relationship with the Written Word. Let's take a break and come back. We'll be talking about Invisible Ink. You'll be able to hear us. Ink, adink-a-do, adink-a-dee, a do Oh, what a tune for crew.
4: I dink a doo, I dink a dee, I dink a doo. It's got the whole world in. Looks like animal skin.
0: How old is it? At least 200 years.
4: Really? Sure.
0: Pretty darn. Now, if this thing's an invisible ink, how do we look at it?
4: Throw it in the oven. No. Uh -uh. sulfate inks can only be brought out with heat. Yes, but this
2: It's, It's very old. It's very old. And we can't risk compromising the map. You need a reagent. Dad, it's really late. Why don't you get some rest? I'm fine. Lemons. So let me quickly tell you that when we do a show like this, Josh Nile is the producer of the show, but we all meet in our room and we talk about all kinds of different ideas. And Josh decided he wanted to do this show about ink and various different ideas came up. And I, I don't know who, probably Josh, uh, decided that one part of this should be invisible ink, uh, the kind of ink that people use, rather, that, uh, rather than merely to communicate to one and all, but uh, instead to conceal what they want to communicate uh, from everybody except one particularly, particular intended recipient. That's an over-elaborate <laughs> description of invisible ink. Christy McCrackus, a professor in the School of History, Technology, and Society at Georgia Tech, and the author of Prisoners, Lovers, and Spies, the Story of Invisible Ink from Herodotus to Al-Qaeda, will do a much more succinct or at least more credible job of explaining what this is that we're talking about than I just did. Uh, Christy McCrackus, welcome to our conversation.
4: Hi. Thank you for including me.
2: So this begins for you uh, when you're actually working on a book, not about Invisible Ink so much as espionage techniques of the Cold War. And what did you discover?
4: Well, yeah, I was working on a book on the the Stasi, the East German Foreign Intelligence Agency. And, uh, you know, I'd been looking at... um, Techniques that secret agents use, things like cameras and invisible ink and i couldn 't find anything about invisible ink because it 's actually very secret it 's amazing how spy agencies guard this secret i mean it's it 's top secret classified it 's a method and technique that um, the spy agents don 't want you to learn about, so I finally came across a file, and I ordered it from the archives, and I thought, oh, they'll never give it to me. You know, this is top secret. They'll never give it to just an ordinary historian, and this guy, the archivist brought me a thin file, and I opened it up, and it had this top secret invisible ink formula from the 1970s, and uh, um, I mean, I'm a historian. I'm not a scientist, but I looked at it, and I thought, wow, this is This seems really important. I've never seen anything like this published, Um, and so I read it and then I took notes on it because I thought he wouldn't let me make a copy of it. So I um, took notes, um, detailed notes on it, so I could remember it. Um, And then all of a sudden, at the end, I put in a request to copy, and he gave it to me anyway. But so I guess so, either he it slipped. matter in the end after all. So um, I waltzed out of the archive, um, you know, I raced down the stairs and kept looking behind me to make sure they weren't going to get it back. So um, that's that's how it all started. And then when I started researching, I thought, wow, this is pretty cool, um, you know, Invisible Ink. And I thought, I want to learn more about it. And there actually wasn't very much about it except probably for these books that were written in Invisible Ink, so I couldn't <laughs> read them anyway.
2: Um, So, yeah, I think when people think about secret messages being passed back and forth, whether it's between lovers or spies, they think probably of code. Um, uh, There's been much more written uh, about code and movies made about code. But what you're talking about probably falls more in the category of secret writing. So explain the difference uh, and perhaps the advantage uh, to a certain degree that secret writing has over code.
4: Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, just to get to definition, since you opened with a definition, um, yeah, specialists call what, you know, the layperson thinks of as Invisible Ink secret writing. And, you know, I, sh- I should make clear, like, you know, a lot of people think, oh, a book on Invisible Ink. Oh, yeah, I played with Invisible Ink when I was a kid. It's all about lemon juice and this and that. And, and that's all most people know about it. But, You know, spy agencies, um, you know, it's called secret writing. Invisible ink has this kind of childish um, connotation to it. But secret writing includes, it's not just ink. It's also in the modern age, you can use what's called steganography. It's a hidden writing where you hide writing um, underneath something. And even the ancient Greeks used hidden writing on wax tablets, and they would hide it. Um, So the advantage of secret writing, that is, something that's invisible or hidden, is that the people don't know about it so a code if you send a code and you know someone goes oh a code someone's trying to um, send something secretly um, so we're going to try to crack this code Uh, whereas secret writing and and invisible ink is if you don't know it's there you don't know someone's passing a secret message so it has you know a distinct advantage and obviously if you use both together that's the best thing that's the best encryption if you use both together so because it's not as well known, that's also an advantage.
2: So this idea of hiding the writing um, is—it uh, goes way, way back, and it includes some fairly ingenious and painstaking methods. For example, using somebody's scalp. Explain uh, how this was done during the Persian Wars.
4: Yeah, that's a good one. So there was a, a kind of illiterate. Um, uh, um, slave, and his his head was shaved, and um, they wrote, in, in, in Persian, they wrote a secret message on it, sort of tattooed it or put it on with ink, and it took so long back there to, to, to walk, you know, to Greece, that by the time he got there, his hair had grown back, and so the, the secret message was hidden, um, and they had to shave his head off to read the secret message, which was to say, you know, it said revolt on it, um, and so... That you know, these days we think, gosh, that was really slow. That it would take months to get the secret message over to over to, to Greece to revolt. Um, uh, that's that's a good one.
2: Yeah, you have to have patience for that one. You can't. Yeah, you right, can't...
4: exactly. Yeah, even in the 17th century, it was funny. There was a. A guy who was writing about secret writing, and he said, "You know what strange shifts these Greeks you know they were so slow I mean you know that you know, even the 17th century they said that
2: <laughs> so you said you know people think that it's lemon juice, but it's it's not not lemon juice a lot of the time, right I mean for centuries, people have been using lemon juice and maybe something else, you know some other uh, you know root or laxative or something mm-hmm. or egg yolk paste right lemon juice is often a key in secret writing. Why is that?
4: Yeah, actually, lemon juice, you know, is, is, it, 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 it can be used as, as a secret miting method. Um, I mean, it's, first of all, the, the, the other thing is about invisible ink is it, it's handy. Like, you know, people have lemons in their kitchen, right? So, you know, in a pinch, you can just take it out, squeeze some lemon juice, write a message, and it disappears. Um, and But the only problem is, of course, you know, depending on how you write it, you, you know, you can see the stains on the piece of paper, or whatever. But I was totally surprised that during World War One. These German spies continued to use lemon juice. I called them, I dubbed them the lemon juice spies. It was pretty stupid because they all got caught and executed. So, you know, then they started developing more sophisticated methods for uh, communicating secretly. So it's not secure, it's not sophisticated. You know, but people used it even in World War One, and you can use it in a pinch. you know I'm always hearing stories about prisoners or whatever you know send secret messages the urine or lemon juice and orange juice or whatever, or even in the seventeenth century, a famous you know prison break was a by a guy who used orange juice to escape. so you use what's handy as well so if you're a prisoner and you don't have access to sophisticated methods, you use what's called organic methods. you just use simple messages to write to write secret messages. But, um, and, you know, the, the other weird thing is that, you know, when I was looking at ancient Greece, I thought, oh, well, maybe, I wonder who first started using lemon juice, right? And I searched, and it wasn't actually the Greeks. You'd think, you know, since they put lemon on everything, fish and all their food, you know, and there are lots of lemons around, and even in, in Italy, but they actually didn't use lemon juice. Um, they used, you know, they used the hidden writing. They used other sort of um, inky methods, um, like cuttlefish and things like that. So it wasn't until the 17th century that it became very common. I kept seeing, you know, Matt, you know, things saying, oh, you know, that, you know, that it was very common to use lemon or, or lime juice and just put some fire to it and you shall see. Um, so, so it wasn't always real popular, in, at least in the ancient times. Um, so, that's that's a story of lemon juice. But you know, in the 20th century, it, it you know lemon juice should be just relegated to, to fun or play because it's so easy to detect. You just right. put some fire on it and it it's revealed. So spy agencies, that's why they develop much more sophisticated methods, you know, that are, you know, different steps or, you know, they want to make sure you can't see it, like just with heat or whatever. Um, so.
2: To quickly say that, um, speaking of the 20th century, you alluded to this uh, a few minutes ago, but I mean, there was a uh, a spy, Carl Muller, who was caught by the British authorities. When arrested, he had a telltale lemon in his overcoat pocket, mm-hmm. which he claimed was for his teeth. Um, and, and what, they went back to his room and there was... Something that was was a pen right a pen corroded with, yeah, with lemon it, juice it was
4: corroded from the lemon juice I mean that was such a sad story I mean, and then you know they had a whole investigator who investigated the whole pen and the lemon juice i mean there was the evidence so um, and and i was this was one of the fun moments of doing archival research. I was in England, and I was looking at the national archives and you know, they they retained the evidence, and I've never seen a hundred-year-old lemon until I saw the evidence from the carl Muller case, and it was a hundred-year-old lemon. It was black, a black lemon, just preserved in the files. Um, but yeah, he, it was a sad case, and he said, "Oh, this is for my teeth." And yeah, the poor guy was bawling because he knew he was going to be ex. Back then, they just took them before the firing squad. They had no mercy. They were horrible German spies, and he kept sobbing for his wife. And you know, they 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 shot him dead. It was really a sad case.
2: Um, I am sitting, uh, Christine, not too far from a uh, thoroughfare uh, known as the Silas Dean Highway. So I think we should spend a minute or two at least in the American Revolution Mm -hmm. uh, and talking about Silas Dean, who was a secret agent for the Continental Congress. What does he have to do with invisible ink or secret writing?
4: Well, Silas Dean, he used Invisible Ink um, secret writing. and But, you know, the amazing story of that, you know, during the American Revolution, George Washington, just to, you know, give you some background, and he was really enamored of Invisible Ink. He called it sympathetic stain. Um, and, uh, you know, he wanted, he hired actually James Jay to develop, he was John Jay's brother, um, to develop this, this this invisible ink, which he did, and then a lot of secret agents used it, like silas dean um and so it 's often it it 's really not that well known, but um you know George Washington spies used invisible ink, and then you know when they when they're when when they were getting low on it, you know they they would ask for more and, and James Jay would provide them with more. It turned out he never got paid and kept complaining to Congress that he never got paid and claiming that it even helped win the Revolutionary War. So it was pretty important.
2: Before we run out of time, uh, we on this show never brush past a story or even a point made that in any way involves urine. So you did say something about urine a while ago. This is actually something that people have used. Once again, probably not sophisticated spies or even, uh, y- you know, ingenious lovers. But, but I guess ur- urine and dust, is that the combination you need?
4: Oh, well, that's an, a medieval, a weird medieval um, recipe I came across. Yeah, that, that, you know, that someone wrote something on urine on their hand and then it was revealed by dust and, um, but, you know, prisoners use, would use urine because everyone has access to that. Um, <laughs> that's, again, the whole availability issue. Um, and so, yeah, you can use bodily fluids like that and, you know, blood, urine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera to, to write secret messages.
2: And so, uh, you know, as we head up towards the present is once again, you know, I mean, we were talking to Ted Bishop before about pens and ink and, you know, are they gone? Are they out? Uh, as we head towards the present, everything seems so digitized. The idea of secret writing that could be brought to light by some ingenious means seems like it belongs maybe in the 20th century as opposed to the 21st. Is there still any room for it here?
4: Well, I mean, this is what I always say. If you want to evade the NSA, you should use Invisible Ink because, I mean, if, if, you know, everyone's digitized and you're sitting on at your desk on your computer and you want to send a secret message, it might as well just no one will suspect if you send it, you know, with a card or people still send cards and then you can write in a secret message there and it's less likely to fall into the hands of the NSA. Um, So I think there's a place for it. Um, And plus, I think there's a, a, a resurgence of... You know, interest in old fashioned methods. You know, some of my students come in with a notebook and a pen and, you know, they write things. And um, so I don't think that will disappear totally, although a big part of our life is digitized. However, steganography, there's also digital steganography. So steganography is hidden writing, um, you know, coming from the Greek word steganos, hidden like stegosaurus, hiding, you know, an animal under the spike. So, you know, so you know you can i can send you an image or whatever and there'll be a secret message in there um and you can just open it up and and uh find the secret message so i'm sure a lot of spies still use steganography these days and send messages over the internet it just gets much more sophisticated as you know to do that um but there is you know digital secret writing will continue
2: um, as long as we are digitized. All right. Well, I use uh, from now on, I'm using air-gapped urine. Uh, Christy <laughs> McCrackus, professor in the School of History, Technology, and Society at Georgia Tech, the author of Prisoners, Lovers, and Spies, the Story of Invisible Ink, from Herodotus to Al-Qaeda. Thank you so much for joining us today. We're going to unlock one last mystery for you. What is that? printer ink cartridge costs so much. Why does the ink in the cartridge cost more than human blood? What can you do about it? Maybe that's the most important mystery.
4: Money's only paper, only money Money's only paper, only money only paper.
2: Back to Ink. Uh, In our final segment, well, let's just say, first of all, that probably the most Price inflated substance in the world is the ink that goes into the printer that's sitting somewhere in your house if you have any kind of home office or anything like that. It is very expensive. You go to Staples and it's like $65 for this little tiny cartridge of ink. It doesn't have anything else in it besides ink. So um, this has led to a lot of interesting questions. Some of those questions have wound up in the US Supreme Court. Uh, So we're going to talk right now to Kyle Weens, founder of and writer for. I fix it. It's a wiki-based site devoted to helping people fix their technology and devices. It sounds like we could probably do an entire show with Kyle Weens, but right now we're just going to talk about uh, printer ink.
0: So Kyle, welcome
2: to our conversation.
0: Hey, I'm excited to be here. So um, I
2: guess maybe maybe we could just start with what this Supreme Court case was about, because it's a pretty good window into what the actual problem is. This is a case called Impression Products versus Lexmark. What was the case about?
0: Right, so Lexmark is a printer company, and they, uh, they sell the printers. Oftentimes they sell printers at a loss, or they're just breaking even on the printers, and they make their money selling the ink cartridges. Uh, And we all know ink cartridges are extremely expensive. I've seen stats that ink comes to something like $3,500 a gallon if you were to extract it from the the ink cartridges and get a gallon of ink. So, of course, people are trying to find a way to uh, get ink for less. And uh, there are many companies out there that will happily do that. So what Impression Products was doing was going out and gathering up all of the old toner cartridges from laser printers, refurbishing them, refilling them with ink, and then reselling them. Uh, and Lexmark was upset about this because it was cutting into their business, right? They're selling the printers at a loss, trying to make money off ink. All of a sudden, somebody else is selling ink that's compatible with their printers. It undermines their business model.
2: Right. So, in, in, But in a way, what Impression Products is saying is this is like you buy – a car, uh, and after you buy the car from Subaru, Subaru doesn't get to tell you what to do with the car or how you might modify it or change it a little bit and sell it to somebody else, right? You buy it, it's yours.
0: Right. I guess this is kind of like if Shell was selling you the car at a loss and then expecting that you'd be getting gas (laughs) from them forever, and and then you went to Arco and figured out how to fill up your car from Arco.
2: Right. I love that analogy. So ultimately, what was ruled that, in fact, Lexmark was wrong, right? Lexmark was wrong in the eyes of the court to try to control ink cartridges that way.
0: So it was actually uh, unanimous with Ginsburg dissenting on a small part of it. It was effectively a unanimous ruling. Uh, but the underlying question was, if you, uh, if you buy something, uh, when uh, do the manufacturer's patent rights end? So what Lexmark was doing was sell, suing Impression for patent infringement over uh, over the patents in the ink cartridge. And no one was really disputing that Lexmark's patents were in the cartridge, because Lexmark had actually built it in the first place. What they were doing was they were suing Impression for patent infringement for selling a product that included their patents. And the Impression was saying, yeah, we know, we got it from you. Uh, and, and so when, the argument was basically over once a manufacturer has sold a product once, Do they continue to have patent rights and can they continue to collect royalties on every subsequent sale of that product?
2: So let's back up a little bit and just say that this whole uh, area of frustration with one's own printer and the ink cartridge that goes into that printer is much older than this particular legal case. And and people have been kind of hacking this for a while, right? The, The cartridges tell you when they're all done, but people have raised questions even about whether that's an accurate measurement of the ink in the cartridge.
0: Absolutely. There's all kinds of clever hacks that people have come up with. Oftentimes the cartridges have a counter in them. That's how many pages that they expect to get out of it. But let's say that you print pages that use less than average ink or less ink than they're expecting you to, then the cartridge may stop beforehand. So there's ways that you can reset the counters. In the toner cartridges, uh, right, it's, it's actually powder inside. And, and I recommend everybody do this. If your toner cartridge says that it's empty, Uh, take it out, shake it back and forth, and that'll level out the ink, and then put it back in the printer, and oftentimes that gets you another another couple hundred pages.
2: So uh, there's sort of, as there will be, there has been kind of a war going back and forth between people who want to hack this process and companies that want to control this process, right? The the people who, who figure out a way to keep the uh, ink cartridge going are constantly being defeated or uh, attempts are made to defeat them anyway by the companies?
0: Right. I mean, the, the print cartridge uh, parts of HP and Lexmark are the most profitable portions of these businesses. They make a large amount of their money off of selling ink. And of course, all of us know this and we all feel like ink is a rip off. And so we want to you know, pay as little as possible. And so there's this constant kind of back and forth between us and the printer cartridge companies where they want to rip us off, but not rip us off so much that we rage quit and we go to another company.
2: Right. So, you know, in the case of Lexmark, I thought what was really fascinating about this was that they really were selling two different kinds of cartridges, one that you pay a lot of money for, and it is reusable. You could fill it up more back up with ink. And then uh, the other kind, not as, uh, not as expensive, um, at least marketed as a single-use ink cartridge. What was the difference between the two, though, ultimately?
0: Well, effectively, it just comes down to like a software lock or one individual thing that they're going to do on it. And so Impression figured out a way to reuse those single-use cartridges and went about their business. And and Impression didn't like – or uh, Lexmark didn't like that. Uh, we see this over and over again. Manufacturers come up with clever ways to limit control of what, what they want you to do with the product. Right? Keurig was selling selling coffee makers and saying that, that you could only use Keurig K-cups in them, and of course people rebelled and pushed back. So this is a case where Lexmark is saying we're selling this thing at single use and everybody else is saying, actually, no, we can reuse it just fine.
2: Um, In this case,
0: they got they got some clever lawyers involved and they took it all the way to the Supreme Court.
2: So now should we be dancing in the streets? Has the giant been slain? Is the witch dead? Can we now just get uh, less expensive uh, ink for our our printers? I mean, can we just go and get our cartridges filled up by somebody else with, with new ink?
0: Now, if you go into Staples and you buy a Staples branded print cartridge, that's probably not a brand new cartridge. That's probably a cartridge that's been out there before and been refilled and resold. So you're already getting the benefit of that. Uh, I, I think that it will, it will continue, that we'll, we'll be able to fortunately continue to buy these refurbished products. I think it should take some of the fear out of us. Anytime you're thinking about buying something that's, been, that's secondhand or that's been refurbished, that's going to be a better value for you. And it's actually better for the environment because you're consuming less raw material.
2: Not only consuming less raw material, but I also assume generating waste. I mean, uh, generating less waste. Uh, these cartridges must pile up somewhere, don't they?
0: Right, absolutely. And they're actually pretty darn hard to recycle because the toner in them isn't clogs up the machinery. So a lot of these cartridges just end up getting landfilled. So if you can reuse them, uh, if at all possible, please do.
2: So I I feel like what really happens, I mean, I'm so glad that we're talking to you because I feel like what happens is we're just sort of obedient slaves to our robot masters. I've never given this much thought at all. I just go to the store where I know the cartridges are. I look for the number that's on my printer and I match it up with something sitting on a rack and I buy it and I go home like a little sheep and I put it back in. Uh, And I, I think people don't even think in terms of there being options probably.
0: Uh, yes. And I mean, you're always going to have this tension between the most convenient thing to do and the most cost effective thing to do. This is a situation where if you go online and you find somewhere that's selling bank, or you go maybe past the shiny uh, banners and the staples to the back where they've got the store brand cartridges, you're going to be able to save quite a bit of money.
2: All right. That's a good thing to know. That's where we're going to have to stop right now. Kyle Weens, founder and writer for iFixit, a wiki-based site devoted to helping people fix their technology and their devices. Special thanks to everybody who worked on today's show, especially Josh Nilea and Kion Wolf.